we're talking about the illegal wildlife trafficking, and many of us think of just animals that are being transferred to different owners or to different countries alive. But we're also really talking about animals that are being slaughtered for their skins and for their tusks as well. Introducing the Protectors, inside criminal minds from around the world. Presented by the IAFCI, leaders in safeguarding consumers from fraud and scams for more than 50 years. And now your hosts, International President Mike Carroll and International VP Mark Solomon. Hello, everybody. This is Mike Carroll, International President of the IAFCI. Welcome to today's podcast. With me, co-host, is Mark Solomon, our International Vice President. Mark, how are you doing today? Mike, I'm doing great, and I'm really excited for this podcast and our next guest. Our next guest is a forensic accountant by background with over 20 years' experience working across multiple regions around the world. She specializes in multi-jurisdictional financial investigations with an emphasis on anti-corruption, money laundering, tax evasion, and asset tracing. Over the last five years, she has concentrated on applying financial crime tools to environmental crime offenses across Africa, Asia, and Latin America. We are honored to have with us here today, and all the way from Cape Town, South Africa, Amanda Gore. Amanda, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, good. I'm pleased to be with you here today. Hi, Amanda. This is Mike. Thank you again. It's an honor to have you on our program today. Amanda, if I could just start out by asking you, how did a financial crime professional like you get involved in combating the illegal wildlife trade and environmental crime? I think it's around um, 2014, 2015. Um, I was the deputy head of the anti-corruption agency in Botswana, and we really just started to think about wildlife crime um, as an issue. At that point, we were really only looking at how corruption acts as a facilitator of the illegal wildlife trade and really training the investigators in the anti-corruption agency on what they should be looking for. Once I left Botswana, I joined um, a multinational bank in, in Singapore, and we really started looking at the financial flows linked to the illegal wildlife trade as well. We started to detect some, actually, bribe payments um, that were being made from specific pet stores in Asia um, into uh, psychic management officials that managed permits for the trade in, in endangered species. And really just started to really pique my interest um, once we started to look at the different financial flows globally. I was then um, engaged by UNODC, and then I worked for the Wildlife and Forest Program for around two years. And again, really um, sort of getting a lot more detail or on-the-ground experience supporting law enforcement in Africa, Asia, and Latin America to conduct financial investigations linked to the illegal wildlife trade. With that role in the UN as well, we did create a number of public-private partnerships, bringing together different financial institutions, banks, and different law enforcement agencies to really start talking about um, the illegal wildlife trade and the associated financial flows. As part of that work as well, we did compile a report, which was subsequently published by Traffic, um, an NGO called Traffic, also here in South Africa. And basically, we we looked at documenting all the different money flows and the corruption vulnerabilities, the convergence of wildlife crime with other crimes, etc. And it's published now as as a report called Case Digest Report. Really, that uh, UN role is looking at um, the whole criminal justice chain and what 
what should each actor be doing when it comes to the illegal wildlife trade? I guess the last year and a half, we're now putting everything together and we've broadened out the scope. So I guess from 2014 to 2015, we were looking at the illegal wildlife trade um, specifically. We're now looking at a lot more broader environmental crimes. So that includes, for example, deforestation and illegal logging, illegal fisheries crimes, illegal mining, waste trafficking, and I'm also looking at pollution crimes as well. So I've got my own organisation now, and we're looking at um, criminal justice options globally, combating environmental crime, using financial crime tools, as well as teaching for the University of New Haven. So we have two graduate courses there in, in wildlife crime and environmental crime. So Amanda, thank you for what you're doing. And why is financial crime so relevant to environmental crime? I think, you know, there's a there's a growing awareness of how financial crime tools and techniques can really be applied to different environmental crimes. So a lot of the actions are based on the fact that um, there are a lot harsher penalties and a lot of the laws on money laundering, corruption, fraud and tax, for example, rather than if you're trying to prosecute someone for wildlife crime, the consequences were just not that significant. So they're really looking at, you know, what are the other angles that we can use to combat this crime and what legal avenues do we have? So money laundering, corruption, etc., have become much more attractive avenues to really get those criminals that are involved in the crime with um, some consequences, I guess, to their actions. And I guess the other real, uh, really relevant point here to make is, you know, that a lot of these crimes, environmental crimes, are, are done for money and for profit. So that's what's driving these crimes. So we really need to start looking at the money trails as part of it to make sure that we can disrupt these different crimes as well. We have a case here actually next door in Namibia um, that became quite well known to an Al Jazeera documentary in, in late 2019. The case is called Fish Rosh. Um, and that was a case of where um, there were a lot of fishing quotas that were being allocated to an Icelandic company. And those, that Icelandic company was paying bribes to different ministers in Namibia to get those fishing rights. So that's wow. a case that's ongoing, but I, I think, you know, we really have just started to understand the complexities of how these two intersect, and they are pretty significant in terms of different financial crimes being a component of the broader environmental crime. Amanda, wow. I find what you do so interesting. Um, can you tell us a little more about what law enforcement is doing to combat international wildlife trafficking? Yeah, so I, I guess i just also clarify, you know, when we talk about uh, the legal wildlife trade, often we are talking inclusive of illegal logging and fisheries crimes as well. We have one in Thailand, and it's called the Chinat case. Um, and basically that's an illegal logging syndicate actually a family syndicate that was operating in Thailand to source different illegal Chinese rosewood. So they were trafficking a lot of this across the region um, and they were also involved in a number of different wildlife crimes. Now they had proved pretty elusive to the, the law enforcement authorities in Thailand and so I guess about four or five years ago the authorities created the multi-agency task force where they looked at applying money laundering laws what they did in this case was that they identified all of the assets that may have been linked to um, the proceeds of the crime, and they went through the legal process to recover those assets. 
So in this case, it was a pretty successful outcome where they, uh, the Thai authorities were able to identify and obtain around 3.7 million US dollars of assets that they were able to recover from this organised crime group that was involved in, in trafficking of, of Siamese rosewood and also the broadest for wildlife products as well. We've also got another case that's actually a US case that's um, linked into Uganda. And the US Fish and Wildlife Service have done a lot of undercover work to try and break up some of these syndicates, especially here in Africa. They have added as part of that case as well um, a money laundering conspiracy charge, and they have actually indicted a number of individuals that are involved in the broader illegal wildlife trade. The indictment also mentions heroin in terms of the trafficking of drugs. So you've got a lovely indictment that has you know drug crimes, wildlife crime, and money laundering. So um, you know there's a lot of great work that's being done. I think that law enforcement globally are really starting to see the benefits of how they can use money laundering laws, whether that be through asset recovery mechanisms, whether that be through buffer sentences. We're really starting to see some good action um, from law enforcement. Yeah, Amanda, it's it's amazing the nexus between financial crime, organized crime, narcotics trafficking, and wildlife trafficking. It's it's really amazing. Uh, probably a lot in our audience wouldn't suspect that all those different criminal activities occurring in this particular uh, situation. I know you mentioned law enforcement and the incredible work that they're doing, but what can banks and financial institutions do to help combat illegal wildlife trafficking? Yes, I think there's been some really um, great work that has been done by the banks and financial institutions in the last four or five years as well. There is something called the United for Wildlife Financial Task Force that's run um, out of the UK that basically has a number of different banks and financial institutions signed up to it to assist in combating the illegal wildlife trade. Now, that is led by the Duke of Cambridge, um, so there is a lot of support for that initiative and there's a lot of collaboration between the public and private sector and really giving banks those pieces of information that they need to act on within the bank. So it may be different alerts the task force send out and that can trigger an investigation within the bank. And also looking at different topologies. So, you know, what are the high-risk industries? What are the red flags that banks should be looking out for? So even this week, we had the FIC here in South Africa have also, um, just published something specific for the banks, really guidance on you know, what they should be looking for in terms of those high-risk industries and red flags. And, you know, there, there's also a lot of information out there in different reports, uh, UNODC reports um, and APG, et cetera, the Asian Pacific Group on Money Laundering. So there is a lot of information now for banks to act on, and uh, I think there's a lot of momentum for banks to get involved, especially in combating the illegal wildlife trade. Wow, Amanda, it seems like, you know, international wildlife trafficking, there's no borders, especially with you traveling all over the world. But can I ask you, what's the main way you think that the money is moving in this type of trade, international wildlife trafficking? So, I mean, what we've done is we've mapped out different supply chains that are involved. So, basically, if we look at illegal wildlife trade, we have a different structure of how it operates. So, we may have the poacher in the source country, um, people that assist with the logistics and, say, moving the ivory or the pangolin scales, for example. And then that's sort of a local middleman. 
obviously facilitates the transport um, across borders through the transit or destination countries to the final retailer and then the final consumer of that ivory or that pangolin, um, for example. So what we've done is we've tried to map out the money flows around those supply chains and how they operate. And what we've found is that payment methods actually vary across the supply chain. So we might see a lot of cash payments that happen for the poacher, for example. I know we had an example in Tanzania that it was $20 US to shoot an elephant. So it's, it's a very small amount of money at that bottom of that supply chain. Sometimes these poachers even do it in terms of the barter trade. So it may be even just for food or for basic survival. If we move up the supply chain, we start to see a lot more mobile money payments. I don't know how popular they are in the U.S. yet, but we have a lot of Vintesa, say out of Kenya, and different other mobile money payments that you use on your cell phone. They have become pretty popular. We've also seen a lot of barter trade in some circumstances as you move up the supply chain. And that can be, so for example, a container of ivory could go out of Tanzania, say for example, to Asia, and in exchange, um, they will send a container full of, say, used car parts. So it will be about the exchange rather than actually money flows that are changing hands. And then I guess we see a lot of wire transfers and bank transfers at that sort of higher level of the syndicates as well, um, through different companies, fronts, and basically to distribute to the lower levels of the supply chain for their goods. Yeah, so there's a lot of diversity in, in terms of the money flows and it's are not always easy to track down. We also have an issue here in Africa where, you know, a lot of money flows are taking place in other parts of the world, so we don't have the visibility of some of those financial flows. But I think we are making a lot of progress in terms of just understanding some of these underground money flows as well and, and starting to, to look at how these operate. Amanda, are you seeing any Hawala-type uh, transactions and also cryptocurrency? Yeah, so we are seeing a lot of the um, Hawala-type transactions, especially um, in some of the cases outside of Kenya. We haven't yet seen anything that's linked to cryptocurrency, but I, I hesitate to say, I mean, it may exist, but we just haven't seen it yet. I think for cryptocurrency, we have seen it more on the human trafficking side, which sometimes links into the environmental crime, but not yet purely on, on the wildlife or environmental crime side. Amanda, you mentioned earlier that you teach at the uh, University of New Haven as an adjunct professor. Can I ask you, who are your students for the class? Are they here in the States? Are they international students? Are they in law enforcement? I was just curious, what type of students do you have for your class? Yeah, so that's a really great question. We get a lot of different students. Mostly they are from the U.S. at the moment, and they are a mix of young students. We've had people from the EPA, for example, or the Department of Defense and students in the class. Or we've had people that are really just uh, they're just getting started in their careers, and it's a criminal justice major, and they're interested in just to see what wildlife tracking will look like or environmental crime will look like. So, yes, we have a real mix. I think we are looking to expand they're getting more international students. So we have started to get a few more students from um, different countries, but at the moment it's still predominantly U.S.-based. And Amanda, um, 
couple of questions, actually, if I get two, if that's okay. For people that are listening here today, how can they become more involved in bringing awareness to illegal wildlife trafficking or environmental crimes? Are there particular organizations or groups that you work with that they can uh, reach out and support? Yes, I think there is a lot of information out there now um, in relation to the illegal wildlife trade and environmental crime. I think the awareness is growing, so there is a lot more than mainstream media, but there are also a lot of great non-profit organizations out there that you can uh, really join and volunteer your time or really sort of follow them in terms of some of the different uh, updates and shifts in our awareness in the environmental crime field. So um, there are a number of different non-profits all around the world. So there's obviously traffic, UNODC are doing a lot, the Environmental Investigation Agency, there's one Global Witness and Greenpeace are also doing a lot of great work um, when it comes to deforestation as well. So it's really just about signing up to their mailing list, checking out what they're doing, and really learning, you know, I guess the complexities of how these crimes work. And Amanda, I know before we were talking about money laundering, and some of our audience may not understand completely what money laundering is and how that plays a factor into illegal wildlife trafficking. Could you explain to our audience what the criminals have to do with this money that they're getting for this illegal trade in order to make it look legitimate? Yes, I think, you know, a lot of what we're seeing in terms of the the money laundering side of it is you know, those that are, that are financially benefiting from the illegal wildlife trade are then converting the illegal proceeds into into assets. So I think we talked a little bit about the China case earlier, and that's basically um, a criminal network that was financially benefiting from trading in illegal signage rosewood, pangolin, and different other wildlife products. And so basically the whole process of money laundering is around identifying the proceeds of those crimes and uh, taking them away. So that's an example of, of how we can use the money laundering laws. Corruption, well, corruption is also a, a big issue on the illegal wildlife trade and especially acting as a facilitator too. Unfortunately, there's been uh, sort of less success with applying some of the, the anti-corruption laws to the trade, um, but it's definitely there is definitely potential to, to do a lot more on the corruption side as well. Amanda, do you do a lot of presentations? I know you participated in the uh, IFCI training conference recently in Chicago, but do you travel a lot to do presentations on you know wildlife trade and environmental crimes? Yeah, yeah, so I do. There's a lot of different uh, conferences around the world that I've been looking through. So I'm actually going to be giving a presentation to the IAFCI here in Cape Town early next year, and also potentially there's the Johannesburg chapter. We also had a conference the other day, um, the International Compliance Association, uh, different panel discussions as well. A lot of the sessions are now on green crimes, so they like to call it green crime. I guess it's just another word for environmental crimes, but really starting to create the awareness of, of the financial elements linked to the green crimes. And I think maybe I just mention as well, um, FinCEN in the US just actually published a, a discussion note last week on environmental crimes. They're also starting to realize the importance of this area as well. 
So, Amanda, I wanted to share, believe it or not, I spent 26 years in law enforcement here in Connecticut, and uh, I remember having a case as a young detective where we actually seized an alligator from somebody's residence. And, uh, you know, people don't think that this, yes, believe it or not, it was quite the experience. Luckily, it wasn't a full-size one yet, but... um, You know, like I said, people don't realize how much of this is going on in our communities. So, man, I thank you so much for the awareness and the attention you're bringing to this criminal activity. Listen, like I said, uh, we support everything that you are doing to combat this and bring awareness to the public. Mark, do you still have the crocodile? Uh, we were <laughs> we had the environmental protection agency and uh, wow. uh, come out and um, they uh, they rescued the um, alligator. Thank God. Amanda, can you tell our audience a little more about the illegal pit trade? Yeah, so I mean, uh, I think uh, in the example I had earlier, we we talked about um, falsified CITES permits. So a lot of these animals do end up in pet stores, for example. So there is a huge illegal market for the pet trade as well. I just keep thinking about the Middle East. You know, they love their big cats. So I don't know whether you've seen or not, but there's often quite a lot of pictures posted on Facebook or social media. And you'll see these big cats that are are sitting in these, you know, Ferraris or these these very flash cars, because that's sort of what they like to do in, in the Middle East. So... So, yeah, the, the illegal pet trade is, is something pretty significant, and it, it differs in different regions in the world as well. You may get a lot of reptiles and, and snakes and things like that. I know in Germany, um, that's a really big thing. So, yeah, it, it, it's really a fascinating industry once you start to look at it from that global perspective. So, Amanda, if you are aware of somebody that has an illegal pet or a wildlife animal, um, where can you reach out to? I know, obviously, it's going to depend on each country, but do you have some recommendations where to start if people have knowledge of animals that should be in the wildlife and and not being kept as pets? So, for the U.S. market, I really reach out to the Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, They're doing some pretty great work and, and very serious about cracking down on this. They also have a very good global presence now with attaches in, in a lot of different countries around the world. So from a U.S. perspective, that's your best option. In a lot of the countries, say here, for example, Africa, Asia, there's wildlife or environment authorities that also deal with that. So um, those are your best bets in terms of, of reporting any issues like that as well. Amanda, can I ask you, transporting illegally animals from one country to the next if somebody was to do that what what are you seeing as far as how they're doing it i mean how are they getting something illegal from one country to another country are they putting them in containers or putting them in a suitcase i don't know how, do, how are they slipping or getting these animals illegally from one country to the next um it changes based on the different commodity so for example um in east africa was always a case of big containers of ivory and penguin scales that would be leaving the ports now for example those have moved to west africa and nigeria that's where it's all happening with the big containers um for example but if you're looking at something like um rhino horn for example which is very common down here in south africa that might go by ear so you'd smuggle that onto a plane and then sometimes there is some complicity um, with the different airline officials in getting some of those rhino horns to their destination countries. So 
One of the things that we've observed in our work as well is they, they talk about opening the routes. So if you want to smuggle something from point A to point B, you will have a criminal group that owns the route. So they, that means that through that process of sending from country A to country B, there'll be a chain of people that will facilitate that it gets to its final destination. And obviously that's through the use of bribes and, and being complicit and getting these, these illegal wildlife specimens through the system. So yeah, it really depends on the type of commodity that you're looking at or the different species that are being trafficked. But yeah, I guess COVID has also changed things a little bit. So we are, you know, obviously we have some restrictions in flight. So there was a lot of disruption to the illegal wildlife trade through COVID. But that's um, obviously resuming a little bit now, now that air travel is much more common again. So, Amanda, we're talking, uh, obviously, about the illegal wildlife trafficking uh, here, and many of us think of just animals that are being transferred to different owners or to different countries alive, but we're also really talking about animals that are being slaughtered for their skins and for their tusks as well, correct? Yes. So, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of, say, for example, um, pangolin scales that are uh, used in the traditional Chinese medicine, um, where we have rhino horn, and that, you know the rhinos are killed for their horn. That ends up also as a medical tonic. Some say, for example, that that um, rhino horn can cure cancer. So it, it became very popular in Vietnam for for a period of time for its medicinal quality. So yes, there is a, a variety of live uh, and dead products that that are shipped and um, transported as part of the trade. Amanda, one more question. You know, being an international crime, do you do, like, training to custom agents all across the world on what to look for or what are endangered species so they know it can't be transported? Or like Mark said, you know, where there's slaughtered animals and the tusk and the skin. Do you do training for custom agents across the world? Yeah, so a lot of our training is with different wildlife authorities or police agencies, for example. Often we do need to have uh, a number of different government agencies involved in different training. My expertise is more around the financial investigations, but there are um, people that we bring in um, to do the, I guess, the identification of different species and, and more the customs work, I would guess. We have worked with customs and trained customs significantly, but that's more on the financial elements of, of the illegal wildlife trade. So, Amanda, I, man, I, I think you have really opened the eyes of our listeners today as to what is going on with illegal wildlife trafficking, environmental crimes. I can't thank you enough for appearing here today on our podcast and really bringing a light to this uh, horrible crime. And we wish you all the best and all the success in combating this. And you have a big fan club here in the United States and, and with the IFCI globally. So we thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show today. It was really great to be part of it. So, Amanda, uh, we're going to, if it's okay with you, we're going to put your information on the show notes. So if people have additional questions or want to contact you to learn more about your mission and what you're doing, it will be on our show notes uh, for the podcast. Excellent. No, that's great. So, yeah, I mean, um, you can find me on globaladvancement.org. And obviously, I can direct you to anyone that's interested in the New Haven programs as well. 
Absolutely. Thank you, Amanda Gore. And uh, thank you to our audience for listening to another podcast of IFCI Presents The Protectors. And uh, with that, Mike, we're signing off. I'm Mark Solomon. And this is Mike Carroll. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Remember, as you join the fight to protect our citizens, you're not alone. With more than 6,500 members from around the world, the men and women of the IAFCI are standing together with you. To learn more or to join the IAFCI, please visit our website at www.iafci.org. The Protectors Podcast is produced by Modified Media and is available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. The hosts and guests' opinions are their own and do not reflect those of management, employers, or sponsors. Listeners are encouraged to contact law enforcement if they suspect being a victim of a crime.